Welcome to the Change Lives, Changing Lives podcast, a ministry of Locust Hill Baptist Church in Travelers Rest, South Carolina. My name is Michael Hodge, Senior Pastor at Locust Hill. At Locust Hill, we celebrate the change that God alone could bring in our lives, and we also recognize the calling to share that good news with others. Lives changed by Christ, changing lives by Christ. We welcome you to this podcast where we want to equip you to live in the reality of a life changed by Christ. Disciple-making is at the core of a church's calling, and we want to take advantage of every resource we can to encourage you today. We invite you to join us for a service Sundays at 10.15 a.m., Wednesdays 6.30 p.m. Our church is located at 5534 Locust Hill Road in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. Our website is locusthillchurch.org. Welcome to episode 11 of the Change Lives, Changing Lives podcast, Gentle and Lowly series. We have just a few episodes left to record. I want to hear a lot of applause all around the table. We've enjoyed just walking through the series and studying Gentle and Lowly together and certainly grateful for the staff who've been willing to discuss it and all of you that have listened along as we study together. And one of my deep convictions is that so often we're shallow in our spirituality because we're simply unwilling to go out into the deep end of the truths of our faith. Too many are content with walking around in the shallow water, maybe a quick devotional thought, one verse snippet, while at the same time God has blessed us with so many folks that have poured their hearts out in resources like this, gentle and lowly. Dane Ortland, he captures so many powerful truths, but at the same time, he's reflecting back on writers from so many generations ago, and so he's pulling them in. They have insights for us as we strive to live our faith. And so I'm grateful for this group that's willing to walk through the resource. And it made me think of A.W. Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy. And this is what he said. He said, the only way to recoup our spiritual losses is to go back to the cause of them and make such corrections as the truth warrants. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It's impossible to keep our moral practices sound or our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. So this is a chance for us just to think of God as he is. And we're kicking off this chapter, chapter 15, and our discussion today, his natural work and his strange work. And Mm. so... As we walk through this chapter, we're going to be challenged. And Jason, I'm going to start out with you with a question comes from the text here. At this point, we turn to the Old Testament. We've been considering the heart of Christ from the New Testament. Jesus provides new sharpness to who God is, but not fundamentally new content. And so, again, we've been walking through the material, looking at a lot of the New Testament. So how does it fit in with the Old Testament? What does Ortland want to demonstrate in this chapter? One of the things that, that Orland is doing very well, a good job of, is connecting um, Jesus in the New Testament to God of the Old Testament. And specifically, he is continuing that natural traje- trajectory, big word, sorry, it's Orland uses, of what God had already been trying to reveal about himself uh, through the Old Testament. We get this, um, in the Gospels, we get this understanding 
that the Old Testament was preparing us for a humble Savior. Uh, in fact, Orland says the incarnate Son does not send our understanding of who God is spinning off in a new direction. He simply provides an unprecedented flesh and blood reality of God, of what God had already been trying to convince his people down through the centuries. So really what's happening here is that we're getting uh, we're getting the beginnings of, of who Jesus is in the character of God, in the in the in the creator of God. And the Old Testament is simply a shadowy revelation of God. The New Testament is the substance. That's what Ortland mentions in the book. And so when we think about that, um, you know, a good launching off point is, is Lamentations. But before we get there, Will, the follow-up question to that would be, do you think of the Old Testament as giving us a cooler or more calculating God? Well, funny, uh, you used everything in the book that I wanted to use to answer this question. So that's that's oh, great. Yeah. Love, Stole your thunder. I love that. Um, but two sentences that I think that can point us in a direction um, that really made me think of uh, this metaphor I was taught a long time ago. I can't remember who taught it. It's, it's about trees. It's the first thing that you read, Michael. And it says, Jesus provides a new sharpness to who God is, but not fundamentally new content. And then the second is what John Calvin put it, how John Calvin put it. And he said the Old Testament is a shadowy revelation of God. True but dim, the New Testament is the substance. And what I was taught so many years ago is that whenever the old, in the Old Testament, they knew that there was a Messiah coming and they were having different things revealed to them. And it's like a man who stands across the field looking at some trees, right? He knows there's trees over there and he can see the trees. He just really don't, you know, got an idea what kind they are. And then as we walk through the New Testament, it's like we're taking steps and steps closer to those trees. When finally Jesus steps on the scene, you can be right up next to that tree and you can say, this is a pine tree. I can see exactly what it is. I know what the bark looks like. I know what the little the little pine needles look like. And so it's an exact it's like giving us an exact picture of who God is through Jesus. And so I really do think it does add that sharpness um, and gives us a more calculating understanding of who God is through the person of Jesus. I like that that quote about his, Jesus is a shadowy revelation of God. The Old Testament is a shadowy revelation of God. Jesus is the substance. It, there's a connection there. It doesn't separate. Right. And, um, and I really love that. Speaking of Lamentations, the central verse of this particular chapter is Lamentations 3, 31 and 33. And uh, that verse specifically says, verse 33, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Michael, you recently preached an entire sermon series on the grace of lament. And certainly Lamentations is a book about, about the author, perhaps Jeremiah, pouring his heart out, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So the question that I would kick to you is, what would you say is the mood, the tone, and the message of the book of Lamentations? And what does Ortland say we find at the literary high point of that book? So Lamentations is one of those books that maybe many of us would look at and say, I'm going to avoid that one, a book on laments. <laughs> yes. But that series was one that really resonated with so many people. Uh, just that invitation to pour out our hearts before the Lord, to come before Him without any kind of facade of what we're going through. We bring it all before Him. And when you read those words in Lamentations, it almost sounds like you're reading a New Testament passage. And so many of those words, 
He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And so that's that core reference here. If you go back a few verses to verse 22, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And so right in the middle of lament and grief and hardship is also a word of hope. And so when we look at lamentations, you do see hardship and suffering, but it's contrasted against the faithfulness of God. And that's the challenge of our lament. We do need to pour out our hearts before the Lord, but it's also recognizing that truth of who he is. And so we say, God, here's my predicament. Here's my challenge. But then encountering his faithfulness. Mm -hmm. So the tone, the message of the book is hardship, but again, set against the faithfulness of God. So the high point is the character of God, not afflicting from his heart, as if that's something he enjoys. So we share our struggles, we share our story, but then we come to the word and find out who truly God is and we see his faithfulness. So as we think about that verse, those key verses 32 and 33, so in what ways then does that affirm divine sovereignty, God's supreme control of everything that watches into our lives? What are your thoughts on that, Jason? Well, Orland specifically says that in, in Lamentations, the Bible takes us into a deeper mm-hmm. uh, understanding of God himself. Uh, the one who rules, the one who ordains all things, uh, brings affliction into our lives uh, with a certain divine reluctance, he says, uh, but he says he's not reluctant about the ultimate good that is going to be brought about through that pain. That indeed is why he is doing it. And Thomas Goodwin is quoted uh, by Ortland and saying, when he, God, exercises acts of judgment or justice, it is for a higher end. Mm. It is not simply for the thing itself. There's always something in his heart against it. And so that just tells me that you know, God's sovereignty, there's a purpose for everything we experience. And that, you know, he mentions the Belgic Confession, Article 13, which mm-hmm. summarizing that, it just makes me think when I read that, you know, everything that happens to us it has to come through God first. And because it has to come through God first, he knows a couple of things, whether we're how we're going to endure this, first of all, are we going to be able to get through it with him or if, are we going to have to rely on his strength? Is he going to grow our faith and cause us to trust him more? Or ultimately, are we going to be overwhelmed by it and have to come to him and say, God, I, I can't handle this. I need you to do it. So. And, and a lot of times when you're talking about that, when that, when, when injustice comes our way, is when our faith is tested the most mm. and our response usually determines, you know, whether we're going to move closer to God or further away from God. That's good. And thinking about that, you know, Amanda, um, there's a quote that, that Ortland says, following the lead of scripture, both Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Goodwin call mercy what God most deeply delights in and judgment his quote unquote strange work. So, what did you get that it means that judgment is God's strange work as you read this chapter? So the book points out that when left to our own natural intuitions about God, we will conclude that mercy is his strange work and judgment is natural work. However, the entire Bible clearly demonstrates the opposite. God's work or God's heart, which is his work that comes naturally, is truly mercy. It is his judgment that is strange. It is not his heart to judge. It is not his desire to do so, but sin cannot go unpunished. Otherwise, he is not a God of love. 
It tied in with that, one of the sections that really stood out to me was page 140 when he talked about God not being made up of parts, God's mm-hmm. simplicity. And this is something that Matthew Barrett talks about a lot in his book, Simply Trinity. And it's kind of an odd idea for us that God is not made up of parts. And the image here is that you can't separate one from the other. Mm-hmm. And I think we're, we're not very good at that. So we can show love or we can show anger, we can show mercy, or we can show judgment. And so it's like we trade one for the other. So if you've got kids, I've got love for you, but you keep pushing me, you're going to see wrath. And so (laughs) there's going to be an exchange taking place. But when we say God is not made up of parts, then he is just, but he is also merciful. Mm -hmm. He is a God of, of holiness and wrath, but he's also a God of love. And so he doesn't have to exchange one for the other. And I I think we have a hard time grasping that. We think if God judges, then he's not good. No, he is good. And his holiness requires that judgment. He's not made up of parts. I I love triggering off of that. Um, Orland says that all of God's attributes are non-negotiable. All of them. For God to cease to be, say, just, would un-God him just as much as he were to cease to be good. Yeah. So the we the whole package is God, and those are those are non-negotiable. Those attributes, the characteristics of God. We want a cherry pick. Yeah. We want a loving God who sends no one to hell. Come on, but that's just not who God is. Or God doesn't send people to hell. Yeah. Conversation so, for another time. Yeah. So you look at how many different people he's quoted just in this chapter: Edwards, Goodwin. The Puritans, and so he's referenced a lot of different ones. And so segueing then into chapter 16, the key verse being a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger from Exodus 34, 6. And the title is the Lord, the Lord. And so as we jump into this chapter, then let's just start out with Exodus 33, verse 18, as Moses asked God to please show me your glory. So, Will, what do you think when you hear that phrase, the glory of God? Well, I'm just going to use what, what Dane put it, and he wrote, his glory is his goodness. And, you know, it made me think of, like, all these, um, like, little glory snapshots we get in our life. Um, and when we think of those things, we think about, like, when he's organizing Scripture, like, in our personal time that we might have heard at church that all of a sudden pop up. And we're like, God, you're so good, man. Like, you're putting all this stuff together. If we're sharing the gospel with somebody and the Holy Spirit takes over and you're like, oh my goodness, I did not even know what to say in this situation, but God, you totally came through. God, you're so good. Thank you. But also after reading this book, I've also noticed that it's not just that. It's like when you have a chance, for example, to come and like meet a student and pray with them because they're struggling in the middle of the night and they're like, hey, I ain't got nobody. I need some help. And like, you're just you know, praying over somebody, pouring your heart out and saying, man, I love you. I care for you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And like leading them to the cross, like, God, that's so good. And it shows God's goodness. And it's like whenever somebody like desperately needs help, like they're struggling with depression and anxiety and stress. And then God just opens door after door after door. And you're just like, oh my goodness, there's no way other than a good God that can open these doors. And we get to see God's glory, not just in the times that we're on the mountain, peak studying God's word, spending time in his presence, but also when we're in the valley and it's like the darkest, you know, it says in the Old Testament, those who walk in deep darkness will see a marvelous light. And oh my goodness, the goodness of God just shines through when you see that marvelous light. Wow. Yeah, I think 
a key part of what you're just saying is we got to share that. So when we see God working, when, you know, those mm-hmm. moments where you're connecting with a student and you see, wow, you see the hand of God directing this, we got to share that story. Mm-hmm. And that's been the real victory of life groups and our Sunday evening sermon discussion groups. That's when people are sharing those stories. Uh, I reflect we're recording this just after our spiritual renewal week and just encouraging people share the story of how God used even that spiritual renewal week for those that gather with us or those that watch online, just how did God move? we got to share that story. And so tied in with that, looking at Exodus 33, 19, God responded to Moses and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So Tracy, how does God define his glory? How does he himself define that? Um, he first describes it as merciful and gracious. Um, those are, as they describe it, his highest priorities, mm-hmm. you know, his first reaction. Um, but also slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Um, and that's for generations, faithfulness, uh, forgiving our iniquities and transgressions and sin, um, but also a just and fair God. That's good. Yeah. That's good. One of the things, Tracy, you said is, is about slow to anger. Um, Orland really takes a deep dive on that uh, when he says slow to anger the Hebrew phrase is literally long of nostrils and he gives the imagery of an angry bull an angry bull is not slow to anger Um, it is quick to anger but Amanda as you considered that image of God that God is not a trigger happy God is not trigger happy in his anger uh, how is that an encouragement to you? Um, like you just spoke about, um, I think it's reassuring that God is slow to anger. Um, oftentimes, our human nature does not follow that model. Um, but I like in the book where it states, there is no termination date on my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace to you. You can't outrun my mercy. You mm. can't evade my goodness. My heart is set on you. Um, so just regardless of what we do and how we respond to things, He's not going to respond in ways that maybe we would. So. I mean, you think about the prophecies that are in the latter half of the Old Testament leading up to captivity in Babylon and how time and time again, God was faithful to say, return to me, return to me, even giving them images of captivity, images of return from captivity. So he's just pouring out, here's what's going to happen. Turn back to me. Uh, I've just been reading in Jeremiah and that message that he was to give to his own people and how burdensome that was for him. But he's given that word of hope. Judgment's coming, but if you'll return. So that image of being on the potter's wheel, that he wants to shape us and form us. He doesn't desire to give us wrath. God is patient, as the New Testament says, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to to life in him. So, So yeah, we see that picture of his mercy, his grace. And we see how how patient God is and how impatient we are as, as humans. Um, and that's just one thing that I know a lot of people struggle with is that patience of not being able to handle a lot. They're, they are quick to just, just erupt um, with anger or ire or frustration. Um, but, you know, going, talking about God's steadfast love in fact, um, Ortland uses the phrase keeping steadfast love for thousands 
Um, Michael, what is the relationship between keeping steadfast love for thousands and, quote, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, as Exodus 34, 7 says? How can this comfort believers? Well, look on news, look on social media, and what is it that runs to the top? It's negativity. I mean, that's what Facebook knows. If I can get you mad, you're going to stay on here longer. And I was listening to a study talking about the algorithms that most of them are focused on negativity. Wow. Because if they can stir you to anger, you'll stay there longer. And you're like, wow, I see that all the time. Listen to talk radio and you get just angry just riding down the road. So you turn it off. And so we look at this and we say visiting the iniquity, you know, and so we focus on that. But we miss the promise that's found in this keeping steadfast love for thousands. So we can look at our life and we see how sin is passed down. We second the vote of Adam and Eve again and again because we make the same choice. But the good news of this is that his grace also is extending. So yes, there's the stain of sin, but there's the hope of forgiveness. And so that promise of forgiveness was true in the Old Testament story, certainly true in the New Testament story, and true for us as well. It's passed down to us through the good news. And so tied in with that, Sandra, the quote here, the Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away. And so when this happens, What's replacing it? Well, as a child or a new Christian, we form an opinion of who who we think God is. And then as we walk through our life and do our own personal Bible studies, uh, listen to sermons, then we realize who God really is through our personal studies. Yeah, and Jab Hacker in the opening of his book, Knowing God, is replacing small thoughts of God is what he talks about. Mm-hmm. So we, we pass around small thoughts of God, we come to the Word, and we find who He truly is. So that's the, the invitation we have. So Ortland says, But of course the final proof of who God is cannot be found in Exodus, but in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So how is Exodus 34 fulfilled in the New Testament? Jason, what would you say to that? Well, in, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, uh, Moses could not see the face of God and live. And, uh, but when John speaks of the Word becoming flesh, uh, he says, we have seen His glory. Uh, we have seen what Moses asked to see but couldn't. And we get to see that. We, you know, the New Testament disciples, and, and they got to see the tangible Christ, Jesus, uh, the revelation of God's Son becoming uh, coming down to, to save us. Um, we get to see now what that, we're living that. Our, our lives are a reflection of who Christ is. And so we get to see it, we get to feel it, we, we get to experience it. Um, the, the full of grace and truth is what was referred to by John, uh, identifying Christ as, as possessing the fullness of, the same traits as God. Um, when we see the Lord revealing his truest character to Moses, this is how Ortland finishes the chapter, we're seeing the shadow that will one day yield to the shadow caster, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels. And so we're being told of God's deepest heart in Exodus 34, but we're shown that heart through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. 
Well, as you can tell, chapters 15, 16, full of a lot of content, a full conversation around the table. My coffee cup is almost empty, so that means we better stop, right? So we, <laughs> we need to wrap up, though. And so I want to pull in just a closing thought, one that really stood out to me on page 152. It continues It's from 151. He says, perhaps... Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the mm. first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Mm. So I think that goes to the heart of people's wrestling with sin and maybe contentment. Francois Carr talked a lot about that in the Spiritual Renewal Week, that we just find contentment, we stay as he compared Moses and Aaron, Aaron in the tent, Moses out encountering God. And so we've been given the invitation to know him, know his heart. And so my prayer for us, for all who are listening, is that we'll catch a glimpse of God passing by. That image from the Old Testament, that image of Jesus as he's passing by the disciples, because when we catch a glimpse of him, we won't walk away the same. So that's my prayer for us as we continue this journey, all of our listeners. So I want to say to everyone, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. I know schedules are busy and it's often hard to carve out time to reflect on God's word. We're thrilled to know that you've joined us around the table as we've been able to reflect on Gentlemen Lowly once again. We hope you can join us next time.